Hello, welcome to More Than Just a Vet, a podcast where I explore the lives of veterinary professionals when they are not at work. I want to know what's behind of the surgical mask of the man or the woman who try to help our animals. What are their struggles? What are their passions? Why did they choose the veterinary profession path? Is it as glamorous and fantastic as we've seen in some TV programs? Or is there more to it? My name is Francisco Gomez. Welcome to my show. Hello, uh, this is this is Elliot. Um, uh, Elliot uh, works as a zoo vet, uh, and Elliot, tell us tell us a little bit more about you. Hi, Fran. Yeah, thank you for the introduction. So um, I have been working essentially as a as a strictly zoo and exotics vet for the last just over twelve months here in Norfolk and Suffolk with a, a couple of sort of outlying clients in Cambridgeshire. So the work is relatively varied. Uh, I've sort of got my experience working in mixed practice with some zoo work for the past five years prior to setting up my own business. So there's been sort of multitude of challenges, partly from the business side and learning the hard way about bookkeeping and all the rest of it that goes with starting a business. Uh-huh. as well as the, the sort of variety of work really involved with the zoo work. So working with small zoos up and down the Norfolk coast, Suffolk mainland, um, varying from anything from birds of prey centres to keepers of sort of dangerous wild animals, uh-huh. so big cats, tapir, things like that. So a real variety, which I think as a vet is something we're always always seeking and what draws us in initially it certainly drew me in was the variety of challenges and variety of settings in which we have the opportunity to work so for that i feel i feel very lucky with the range of work at the moment is that is that what you always wanted to do um when you came to vet school i think it was Fran. yeah i think certainly working with exotics and i felt as though they were something i had sort of fallen into before vet school with my interests in falconry and birds of prey primarily uh, and then through vet school that continued to develop and was only sort of really concreted by the fact that it was so under taught that we felt as though there sort of was this massive yearning and you could see the sort of vicious cycle of a lack of real education I think at the time and an appreciation of exotics in practice yes. and that vicious cycle sort of led to a lack of exposure for students and for vets and therefore the industries that sort of create that exotic industry didn't really have the respect for vets essentially if i'm honest they they felt as though the vets weren't interested or engaging with those industries so those industries wouldn't engage back so on the vet side they're seen as sort of an underrepresentation as an industry because vets just don't see the exposure of the exotics that are actually out there. So that is changing now, I think, and there has been a changing trend for, for pushing for better and better exotics sort of calibre of work and the availability yeah. of CPD and opportunities and help that's out there is it's still a way behind, but it's it's a vast improvement on where it was 10 years ago, so for people, example. So I think those industries are slowly merging and marrying up more happily. So for people who are not not vets and are listen are listening to this podcast, um, you, you would say to them that you know your regular vet doesn't usually uh, have that much experience in other things than dogs, cats, and rabbits. 
Yeah, and I think it's 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 very difficult because there are certainly instances where if you've got a sick animal, whatever that animal is, then having that open discussion with your vet as to whether they're happy to treat it or not. And yes. you get a variety, the same as any job, you have a variety of vets. You have vets that maybe don't necessarily have a great deal of experience, but are very willing to sort of carefully try and give things a go. And you'll have other vets that are that are not that keen. And I think having a, a solid system where those vets are able to obtain advice from other vets that are more keen on those species or refer those cases over is, um, is something that is growing. Which yeah. is making, I think, life easier for, for patients and, and more beneficial for patients, clients and events that they're seeing. Yeah, better networking maybe is what the profession needs about this, I guess. Yes, yeah, exactly. So it's heading in the right direction, definitely. And I think it's gathering pace yes. uh, because you just see the exposure as well. And more vets and students that I've had, they may not have previously had any exotics experience and it may not have been something that they'd sort of really even previously considered whether they had an interest in because they just hadn't had the exposure. So it's nice when you sort of have that engagement with um, with nursing teams as well that I've seen in small yes. animal practices where you get them working with iguanas and wild injured owls and things like that, and, and they love it. It's, it sort of just brings back a bit of a spark to the job, I think, for a yes. lot of people. Even if it's only occasional, it gives them something very different as a challenge and as a species to, to work with, which they seem to really enjoy. Have you spent time in small animal practice or that they see mostly dogs and cats? So in your career, you've been mostly just doing uh, zoo animals or what we um, in a small animal practice clinicians consider exotic? Yes. So I started off mainly for in large animals, so working mainly on farms, and with horses, which at the time, with an interest in exotic, in exotic, seemed a strange curveball way to go. But I was sort of giving in to the Norfolk countryside and life here, and large animal work was a really good challenge. And as it turns out, was a very, for me, beneficial prerequisite to doing mobile zoo work. A lot of yes. the challenges you face in initially large animal are actually something which we face day to day in zoo work, which is often working not within a practice, but on site, having mobile kit, having to think often outside the box a little bit with what is in front of you in terms of an environment and, a, a, and an animal that's within an enclosure. So, and working with adverse weather and things like that. So yeah. actually, that large animal work has been very beneficial on the zoo side of it. But yes, I spent some time doing small animal work as well doing dogs and cats alongside small exotics, which yes. always seem to find you when you're when you're a keen exotics vet. It doesn't take long being somewhere before you start seeing all the bearded dragons popping up. Yeah. So it's been a yeah, it's been a mixture. So I, I've seen that sort of from both sides, I think, of the profession in terms of the large and the small. So, something I I found I, I found difficult in in my time. Well, to be honest, when I get um, booked uh, an, an exotic animals, and I've been doing this job for for a lot of years. My my heart is still sinks, thinking, "Oh no, this is coming to see me." <laughs> um, but I know, and I think it bring, it brings back that sort of concept of, of new grad fear. Yes, it does. Something absolutely that is suddenly out of the ordinary <laughs> that you're not is not within that comfort zone. Yes, um, something that I find as well is um, practices they are designed for dogs and cats, and uh, many of these animals they they tend to be prey. Um, and they, when, when you try to admit them, they, you find that you don't have the best conditions for them. You need to do anything to them. That's, that's something that I, I find challenging. 
Yes, and I think that's absolutely right. I think that's where being very sensible regarding the level of work in which you're able to, or the level of care that you're honestly yes. able to provide for those patients. I think small animal practices are probably getting, they're slowly, slowly getting better with regards to having some waiting area that's designed more for prey species or having somewhere that you could use for hospitalised rabbits, for example. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I agree, that becomes a real challenge seeing them. You know, seeing a patient in the console room is one thing, but suddenly admitting that patient and then making sure that actually what you're providing is is better care than they could give at home is sometimes, yeah, sometimes challenging on a, on a busy ward with barking dogs and, and yeah. cats. If you've not got that magic third area, then yeah. it can be can be a challenge. Yeah. Well, what is what is a normal because you have started a business not that long ago uh, about advising zoos I guess and uh, what is a normal day for you at work? Yeah, so a normal day for me would be initially starting sort of relatively early in the morning um, with a bit of book work. Essentially, if I'm honest, to get the boring stuff out of the way. So <laughs> yeah, I would start with a bit of banking and, and book work and things in the morning to get that out of the way. I would then normally have appointments for either routines or more urgent cases come in first thing in the morning. Okay. So I would generally, within the morning, then be going and doing a routine. So we'll have them scheduled in. So they'll often last a couple of hours. So we could be seeing anything during those routines, which includes on-site post-mortems uh-huh. or for other species where post-mortems aren't appropriate. So primates, for example, we would be organizing submission of those post-mortem samples. So there's a lot of sampling involved in the work. And uh-huh. normally those calls will sort of happen in the morning, then leaving the afternoon relatively free for either emergencies that have sort of booked in or, or called in within that morning time frame, or if there aren't any other outstanding calls, then that's a chance to catch up on planning in calls for the following days or, um, yeah, essentially admin time at that point. So it just depends. It really waxes and wanes. So I'd like to say some days are quieter, but I don't think there are really <laughs> quiet days now compared to when it started a year ago. Uh-huh. I was sort of starting your own business. I was quite excited to have a call booked in that week. Yes. Um, and then that sort of quickly changes and you find the day by day. And it's quite interesting looking back on the calendar from, a year ago to now and seeing how much busier it is, is it, it creeps up, but it's really satisfying to really? see that those clients are staying and, and happy and that work is continuing. So most of it is on site work. Uh-huh. And then I have a very good working relationship with a local practice uh-huh. that will allow me to use their facilities for smaller exotics that can come into a practice. I see. So I will work essentially as an outsider coming in. Um, and then use facilities such as x-ray or surgery facilities and that sort of thing for anything that's requiring more than just a site visit. I see. So sometimes you have to take a um, animal from a zoo and then um, you actually take it to a to a local practice that you have an agreement with. Is that right? Yes. Oh, yeah. So and it's, worked, it's worked quite well. So for some species, obviously, that's pretty problematic. So uh, we had a puma last year where we were introducing... A, a new male puma to a, a, a female that had been within the collection a fair, a fair amount of time. Uh-huh. And within that interaction, as safely as we sort of orchestrated it at the time with everything available to make sure the the introduction went as well as possible, yes. at 
at some point, somehow, and none of us saw it, even though we were sort of surrounding the area, um, there was a, there was an injury to the female puma. So in that instance, obviously traveling an animal like that to a practice just isn't, isn't safe or yes. <laughs> sort of, probably is legal, but wouldn't, wouldn't be a good idea. Yeah. So she was darted and sedated in situ and then an anesthetic was maintained whilst you sort of work on her in the field, so to speak. So that's where my sort of experience in large animal work has come in because yes. you get quite used to those situations where you have to just adapt to the environment that's around you and accept that that enclosure yes. in the middle of the grass or or the area that you've got indoors in terms of their indoor enclosure structure, that is your new theatre and that's where you set up and, and work. Yeah. So yes. it's, yeah, a mindset, I think, over anything else um, of just being as adaptable as you can be, which sometimes is pretty stressful and pretty challenging. Yes. Um, but sometimes it's rewarding when then, you know, things go well and, and you sort of achieve it. So that is probably one of the highlights of the job, I think, is just that constant challenge to adaptability. Quite did, satisfying. Did the Puma survive then? Did the Puma did well? Yes. Oh, yeah, she was fine. She was fine. It was only a soft tissue injury, but um, uh-huh. annoyingly was sort of on the edge of you wouldn't want to, if it was a small animal cat in practice, there's no way you would have just left it sort of chanced it. Yes. So we had to make the decision that really to give her a good chance, we would have to anaesthetize her and, um, yeah, and get her cleaned up and, and stitched up. So it was only a single wound, but it was, um, sort of under her belly where you didn't want to, to leave a wound really. And she's quite an elusive cat. So yes. she wasn't one that you would be able to, and the keepers felt they would be able to monitor safely very closely. Yes. So, we didn't want to run the risk of infection and subsequent sort of risk, further risk to her. So no, she's, she's continued and, and, and done very well. So they've yet to be, uh, yet to be tried together again. So, um, they're both living pretty happy, independent lives now, which I think is how it will probably be maintained. Yes. Um, given that after everything that was, was attempted, they still were not, um, yeah, that something clearly happened Fancy. very subtly at some point, but we felt lucky that she had only had a, small injury that we were able to identify and address. How heavy is, uh, is one of these pumas? That's a good question, Fran. Uh, <laughs> it's one I ask myself frequently when you're looking at drawing up sedation. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, we, um, what doesn't help is that often there are quite a range of opinions. So I mean, the head keeper of this collection is not like... and sort of second guess each other and we often end up quite a few kilos out. So yes. um, I would uh, tend to dose them at about sort of anywhere between... 60 to 70 kilos, something oh, wow. like that, possibly a little heavier um, if they're larger. But That's just honestly, slightly yeah. scary. You know, sometimes you have like um, a German Shepherd or, a, um, or, or one of these in your practice that they don't very much like you um, and yes. they tend to be about 45 kilos and you're thinking, okay. Uh, other times, even cats, you know, you got little cats, yeah. they're three or four kilos and they, they can be scary. So a cat of 70 kilos is, I, are you always feel safe with this? It's a good question. <laughs> um, I think I've done quite a few anesthetics now on big cats and I, I would like to say that I feel proficient and very happy with what I'm doing, uh-huh. but I don't think you ever lose that that sort of, I think, innate Neanderthal fear of such yes. a big predator. It's... So I would say, ironically, I've obviously had far fewer injuries from big cats than I have from small cats, because yeah. small cats will quite happily attack you and scratch you and yes. um, 
sort of perform ninja moves on you that you just can't get out of. So I've had far more injuries from them because I think if you get one injury from a big cat, you, you, it's basically you you know you don't make it. So yes. I yeah I still find it pretty terrifying. To yes. be honest, right? I mean, the I mean, second that you because there's so much that can go wrong. I think yes. your chance of it going well is as high as you make it, but at the same time, with all of that employed, there are still massively inherent risks. So yes. the risk to the cat with with sedating them, with darting, you know, in itself is quite a volatile process. You're yes. trying to thread a dart through an enclosure and you do it in as, in as close a range and as low velocity as possible. And some cats are even trained to accept IM injections, which makes things a lot safer and mm. calmer. But most of the time, you will often be darting them. So getting the dart in the right place yeah. uh, and making sure you don't break bones or or get the dart in the wrong place within the cat is always a careful consideration. And then, of course, you have the anaesthetic risk, which is to the cat. And quite often, these are animals that are quite high profile within a collection, um, if not endangered. So as a species, there's something you have to be very careful with, more, more so some than others. And yes. then there's the risk to humans and quite often when you're performing an anesthetic on these big cats it's not just you you know they'll be keeping staff they'll be yes. hopefully not the public if you've able if you've been able to do it sort of off show or during a time preferably when the public aren't there yes but sometimes you can't help you know if something goes wrong and, and you need to sort of knock a cat out so to speak do an anesthetic in a more hurried fashion than the public are there, then mm. public safety is clearly something you have to consider. The safety of the cat and the safety of your staff, if you have nursing teams or other vets there, there's quite a few sort of pieces to that puzzle that have to get you have to get right to make sure that nobody gets hurt and you also achieve what you want to. Yes. Um, I've been on big cat anesthetics where you've had a, a sort of an idea of 10 different things you want to achieve you get very carried away with seven of them and just forget the other three because there are so many things going on. Yeah. It really does. You learn You learn the hard way, but definitely I think having a, a pre-agreed checklist, for example, of what you are going to achieve within that time period of the cat being asleep <coughs> means that you don't run the risk of missing anything. Yes, or I agree. At least at the time you can then prioritise and just ensure that you have all the samples you want, for example, because... Yes you don't often get hands-on with these patients, so you want yeah. to make every opportunity. So yeah. I don't think it will ever not be scary. Yeah, absolutely. Sure I mean, my, 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 worst, my worst injury was actually with a sedated cat that suddenly decided oh, to bite okay. me. Yeah. So um, I, I'm guessing you can even... Um, um, you have to, to be careful with even with the dart as well because you can dart yourself. Is that right? Yes, yeah. And once you've charged the dart, they're under pressure. So if you were to self-inject, you don't have to actively self-inject, so to speak. If, yeah. if you were to penetrate or sit on the needle enough to sort of just dislodge the, the little cap, um, mm. the little rubber bun, then you could, in theory, self-inject. So again, a lot of it comes down to that side of it, of safe handling and general firearm safety and that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, moving parts to it so but that again is equally the buzz <laughs> yes yeah. yeah yeah true yeah um yeah you i would be lying to say that that isn't an adrenaline rush when you've done it <laughs> and it's all gone well yes. and everyone's safe and everything's awake and it's all fine then that is yeah that's that's a nice feeling and is that what you most like of being a bed like that feeling right i think if i'm honest with you you're thinking about it i I think it is. I think yeah. it's that sense of having a real challenge in front of you where there is real risk, 
and having to be 100% focused on yes. the job in hand. And yeah, and, and then finding that you sort of have managed to achieve that, I think is, is satisfying. There's, there's an, a definite sense of achievement there, yeah. I think, which that given the, that sort of combined with the fact that you have to be very adaptable to the settings that you're in or the species you're working with, I think, yes, if I'm honest, that scenario is probably my favourite part of the job. Yeah, brilliant. brilliant. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, Jesus. I I um, watched something uh, on social media about challenges uh, the Jesus uh, have been um, having faced with um, uh, in the in the last few years, but particularly in the last year with COVID. Um, I'm I'm guessing they they run very often based on visitors, right? Um, and yes. and then you you end up with animals that obviously they need care, they need to be fed. Um, uh, there, there is also social media. There are people who may, even among vets they they kind of oh I don't agree with having these sort of wild animals in captivity and and things like that. Um, is it yes. any any truth? to it and if there is a myth how do you dispel that myth i think in all lesson i, I think in all honesty fran is it's one of these debates where they're most certainly where either side of the argument as a as a polar end isn't correct i think yes. it would be very naive on either end so on the sort of anti-zoo side i think it would be very naive to simply hold an opinion that zoo collections all over the world are wrong, keeping animals in captivity is wrong, and, and it's as simple as that. Nothing's that simple. But equally on the other side, that sort of blanket debate of everything in captivity is fine, that should never be questioned, I think is also the wrong way to go. I think yes. ultimately what we would like to aim for, and I don't think any zoo vets would disagree with me on this, that this comes heavily from a from a conservation point of view and ultimately correcting the wild to facilitate those wild populations to be stable and healthy is what you would strive for. So that is essentially, I think, the, the golden ticket. That's the end goal is to have stable wild populations yes. within healthy and sustainable and safe environments within the wild for those wild counterparts. However, it, it's just not that simple, is it? The species that are in captivity there are some that do better and some that do worse. So yes. there are, and that is challenged all of the time. You look at some of these species that require massive home ranges, then you have to ask, can you, can you honestly replicate what that species needs within a captive setting, especially in limited space? Yeah. So I think it is very species dependent. I don't think for example, a red panda that's within a huge enclosure with multiple levels, plenty of trees to climb, yes. a safe diet, good veterinary care, etc. I, I don't think, as, a, for, as an example, a species like that, yes. um, or a pair of breeding macaws that is within a flock of other macaws in a huge flight yes. within a zoo collection is adversely affected. Yes. But I, again, I don't think it's ever just that simple. I think you have to look at the species as a whole, the individual animals in question. Yes. And I think the only way we, we learn and we, we develop anything is, is to constantly question and challenge it, which a lot of the zoo licensing does, a lot of the zoo inspecting does. Yes. Um, the, at those instances, for example, these things are always challenged. You know, what more enrichment can those animals have? What are we doing and is it good enough? And I don't think any of us ever accept that what we're doing is just 
perfect and that's that. There's yes. always that strive for more enrichment, for more space, for more in sort of data to be gathered on the welfare of these animals, which yes. is growing all the time. So, yeah, I think perfect solution would be wild populations of everything left safely, but we know that the wild, especially at the moment, just isn't that friendly a place, and, and there has to be a plan B in the background, and zoos currently are that best opportunity of a plan B. And for public yes. engagement, it's it, it does it does work. It, it's proven that it does work so, to have those spaces physically where people can go and engage. Yes. It does bring in revenue, which then provides information and, and a lot of monetary um, cash flow into charitable organisations all over the world and, yes. and release projects. Um, I was only on a meeting yesterday with mm. a conservation group that are releasing um, species back into the broads here in Norfolk, and that's a you know that's a great collaborative team of a number of organisations, a number of vets, all working to release and increase these wild populations of birds. A lot of the information and data of which has come from their sort of captive breeding parents, if you like, and then these clutches of offspring are then released. But a lot of the revenue to come to fund that project comes directly from visitors going through the going through the doors at zoos. And that was going to be my next question about how successful um, uh, zoos are in contributing to in reintroduction of species, because I'm, I'm guessing some species, they don't have a chance anymore because we're beyond them. They don't exist. They only exist at zoos. Um, but uh, well, I'm guessing um, zoos will, will have that. And is it routinely, is it quite successful, reintroduction of species in the wild? Or is it um, not always go that well? It very much depends on the, uh, on, on the species itself, and I think. So certainly, yeah, there are some species where essentially in the wild they are pretty much extinct and only now exist in captivity. And I think the difficulty is there, how long do you maintain those populations in captivity? And I think the answer is invariably for as long as you physically can in the hope that you at some point see an opportunity to reinitiate some form of rewilding. So some species I think do particularly well with the rewilding in terms of populations. And I think this is where, this is where there's a general misconception from the public that if you see a lion within a zoo, that that lion should be set free. And obviously that's more often than not a captive bred animal that wouldn't survive itself yes. in the wild, but that's not to suggest that it can't be part of a breeding program that later down the line facilitates other individuals that could be they released could into the wild. Yes. So it's that difficult balance of having essentially that emergency stock of animals within captivity that you can maintain healthcare and everything else for in order to facilitate that rewilding. So there are certain species that um, actually, once you've removed a large threat, can do particularly well. Yeah. So wild uh, wild cats, for example. So uh, not as in the sort of big cats, but wild feral cats are worldwide a huge issue, especially on islands, with uh, species such as the Mauritius kestrel. So nest sites and uh, everything being plundered by feral cats. So actually looking at, and this is where it gets quite contentious, but uh-huh. looking at actual wildlife conservation yes. through the removal of an invasive species that has sort of decimated <coughs> local wildlife, yes. that in itself is a difficult one because 
because reintroducing a, a nice sort of pretty looking animal to the wild people can get on board with that that's you know the public will happily fund that and, and, and get alongside that but the concept of these sort of more contentious conservation measures such as removing uh, an animal yes. from an area that that is a feral species it's it's more difficult because what people yeah. see is is the removal of an animal rather than the introduction and facilitated from that so yes. it's a minefield it really it, is it, yeah yeah i, I can easy. see how how you, you you would face challenges from from the public particularly now with social social media i'm, I'm guessing there is uh, and there are groups that they'll be against you prusos they'll be uh, and yes you're right i think um like with anything in life you need to find the balance uh, you think it works for for you and for the environment, I guess. Exactly. And it, it's just like anything. I think you end up with the sort of extreme opinions on either side when realistically, the majority of people, they want what's best for the animals. And, yeah. and sometimes it's just purely down to education and people don't understand what that necessarily looks like or what the zoos offer in terms yeah. of the welfare and everything else. So, yeah, I think a lot of the time it's very easy, as you say, to look at a social media story and be drawn into it because it looks yeah. it looks sort of quite terrifying, but actually that you have to look at the science behind it. And I think all of us just want to base what we do off, off the evidence that yeah. we are doing, yeah, doing yeah. the best we can for the animals. One thing I want to ask you, it probably has nothing to do with this, um, but it's more with yourself, that I, uh, other people as well, is if you hadn't been a bed, what would you have been? That's a good question, Frank. And I've got a couple of, uh, I think a couple of random answers. Um, so I used to do quite a lot of, um, as part of my photography, I have up until sort of relatively recently, um, always done quite a lot of wildlife photography, but it, it meant that accidentally um, I sort of fell into the realms of being a wedding photographer. Oh, I see. Which was something I, I never planned on doing, but I had a <laughs> friend from school that was getting married on an incredibly tight budget, and she just wanted some photos of her wedding. So <laughs> it was, I mean, it was a fantastic wedding. It was just on a playing field, and the only things they paid for were the marquee and the suits. Yes. Like her mum made the wedding dress, and the family made the wedding cake, and it was just held at a local bar, and they dragged the bar outside, and it was brilliant. And they had a bouncy castle. Um, and it was fantastic. So I felt very lucky that was my first, my first wedding. Uh-huh. But you know what? It gave, it gave me such a buzz. Being involved with a special day like that with people was really quite, quite exciting. So I ended up going on to do a few weddings with people and sort of just, just kept ticking over with them really. It was quite a nice random break from vet work. Yeah. Um, because it's something completely unrelated and. Actually, what I found is the more that you, the more you do them, the more you end up falling into the day of the wedding because essentially these people plan these days, they're yes. ready for them, but then on the day, they, most people don't have a wedding planner there, but the photographer is often someone that is there, that knows the itinerary of the day, they're just a family, so they're not in the squabbles, they they're not stressed, so they're quite level-headed. So you end up being the wedding planner useful on the day. <laughs> yes, um, I've ended up helping brides put veils on, helping get the cufflinks on, um, the brides' fathers, I've ended up chauffeuring guests around that were lost, so um, all amongst taking photos. So yeah, I would say probably, if I'm honest, if I wasn't a vet, then certainly within photography, or possibly even the wildlife film industry, which is, I think, more difficult to get into than zoo vetting, so I don't know how successful <laughs> I'd be, but yeah, wildlife film work, or 
if I'm honest, wedding photography. Either that or a Formula One driver would be nice, <laughs> but probably less likely. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I would do to be a Formula One driver. O- only because of the money, right? <laughs> oh, it would be great. It would be great. But <laughs> yes. um, yeah, but maybe a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah, but but uh, as a photographer, you 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 kept you you kept saying yes, a photographer, but wildlife. You, you end up edging back to to look to looking after animals anyway. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, and I think the, the wildlife photography again, it all ends up part and parcel of the same yeah. thing, doesn't it? Which is that appreciation of wildlife, animals, and general conservation, etc. So, yes. yeah, the wedding photography would would be more of a, a standalone, more random take on that. I think as a as a career path. Is is it right that you are planning your own one? Yes, yeah, which okay. I thought, oh, that'll be fine because I've been with the planning stages of many other people's weddings um, and I thought that'll be easy and it <laughs> turns out there's so much to do. <laughs> yes. uh, so, yeah, I think we're, we're pretty much mostly there but um, having said that, having felt very smug about how organised we are, we've had a pile of save the dates sat on the table now for two weeks yes. which need posting so uh, for as much as I think I'm patting us on the back for achieving it yes. uh, we've probably still got a fair amount to do yes. but um, but yeah yeah, it's, it's going to be fun so, I'm supposed you know, to say a, a massive... congratulations to the groom is that right? oh thank you yes <laughs> okay I, I'm, I'm guessing this, this wedding thing it has been quite a, a difficult a difficult thing the limits of numbers and that's a big has, has become difficult for, for everybody so I'm, I'm guessing you haven't had um, any of these um photographic uh, events um, or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm guessing you're just waiting for COVID to go? Yes, yeah, and I think we would we tried to be as tactical as anyone can be, really. So yes. we, we got engaged last summer and decided to just skip this year, essentially, yeah. um, and just get married next year because we thought either way, COVID would either be under control, hopefully more so, or at least yes. we'll know what we're doing. And yeah. we felt as though trying to sort of get married this year, venues and everything are absolutely mad booked. Yeah. Um, and even if you've got a venue, your chance of getting a caterer would be <laughs> pretty slim. Yes. So and things like that. So we sort of just have bypassed this year. So yeah, everything else is sort of just settled down yes. really while well, I got the business up and running this year and just pretty much focused on that. And to be fair, COVID has been a good year to do it because when you're on call all the time, what better year to do that than a year that you're not missing out on doing yes. anything else? Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. So, so, well, good luck, good luck uh, um, with, with the planning of the wedding and, and everything. Um, one last thing is, um, when you sent me your email about hobbies, uh, something you said, and you, you have mentioned this as well, is about uh, falconry, right? Um, yes. Uh, now, when people say, oh, I like falconry, in my head, I see a bird with a hood over their head and um, I, I usually walk the other way because I have yeah. no idea of, of what this is about. And uh, the only thing I, I know about it, even being a vet myself, is that I'm scared of them walking towards uh, me in the practice. Um, and then, <laughs> uh, why don't you, you tell me a little bit about what it is and what do you get from it? What do the bird get from it? Yeah, of course. So, um, essentially, I mean, I, I got into it years and years ago, um, as we've sort of already touched on. So what fascinated me, I think, was just seeing a predator. And, and I still find it the most fascinating and awe-inspiring aspect of falconry is the essence 
of having a importantly not a wild bird but a mm-hmm. wild type so not a domesticated they haven't been bred domestic to be domesticated in any way you could release these falcons and they would be the same as the wild mm-hmm. parts essentially it's having trust and respect from a bird like that that you are working so closely with that they have literally all of the freedom of the sky yes. and they choose to work with you and i think that's the important thing they haven't been shortcut with domestication and bred to obey people or anything like that if they don't want to fly for you they won't if they <laughs> okay. want to fly off they will um and frequently i think they do <laughs> i see back. but and in essence what the falconry is is i mean falconry in its in its true form is is i think slightly removed from where people consider falconry to be now so falconry now i think when you mention it to members of the public they consider it to be somebody furiously swinging around a bit of meat on a on a long line on a lure um, in the middle of a summer festival somewhere. Yes. So that is sort of, I think, actually quite far removed from where falconry in its purest form is, uh-huh. which is essentially hunting with these birds. So Absolutely. I think the the real the real inspiration that I find from that is that you take a bird that is so designed for purpose. And all you're simply doing as falconry is facilitating that bird achieving what it would want to do in the wild. So the fact that it can do that in harmony with a human counterpart, I just find absolutely incredible. I think there are, there's so much finesse and history to the training of them um, that goes back 3,000, just over 3,000 years. Yes. Um, it's, you know, one of the one of the oldest sports if not the oldest sport in the world yeah um and it's still as captivating i think now as it was three thousand years ago so and hasn't really changed much at all because it's something that can't change that much and there's technologies that come in there's radio telemetry there are the robotic prey that you can fly and compete with which is quite exciting but in essence what it boils down to is the, the trust between predatory bird of prey and yes. a human and that trust is yeah I, I think quite inspiring really um, it's an animal that you, you you know you can't tell it off you can't punish it or do anything like that you have to purely work off trust and time and patience and I, I just think that's incredible yes um, I'm guessing like you said um, Falconry will face quite a bit of criticism from people mostly who are not knowing much about it Yes, and again, I think it's an easy it's an easy one to hold up and paint in a bad light, which is it, yes. it's it's yeah. Obviously, coming at this from a vested interest of knowing a lot of falconers and working with a lot of falconers, it's just I think it's it's such a it's such an unfair fight to go after for people because yeah. really it's it's yeah it's incredible. I think these birds themselves, the birds that are being trained and kept and flown, are. Yes the healthiest animals out there. I think, I don't know anyone, any other species that people weigh every day. I certainly don't weigh my dog every day or my cat <laughs> yeah. um, and do a full health check. Falconers yeah. do. You know, oh, they'll be daily. They'll be recording the second that a bird drops the feather, what feather it's dropped, um, <laughs> altered, where from, yes. um, daily health checks. And you have to achieve that because these birds essentially are, are like the left one cars. I mean, 
they are quite stressful as patients because when they go wrong, they go very wrong. Yeah. But it means that those people working with them to, you know, to allow these birds to remain healthy have to be so, so vigilant. So I think it's, yeah, it's one that crops up every now and again in the media. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of it now about, um, peregrine nesting, for example. So peregrines nesting around the UK. Uh-huh. Um, and I saw an article, I think it was this morning about, and it alluded to the risk from falconers stealing peregrine eggs. And it's just, it's just ludicrous. I mean, there's far more risk from, people that have a vested interest in, in other birds, such as pigeon flying, for example, that, that have a much, much sourer look on wild or captive bird of prey populations. But it, it, it does always seem to be the falconers that, um, that get the short end of the stick. And yes. I think it's possibly because of this attachment that will always be there to hunting. Yes. Um, and people tend to associate the hunting with, with everything hunting wise. Well, it's sort of seen in the same light as, as fox hunting, as uh, hare coursing, whatever you, whatever you name. Whereas, which is far from it, yeah, isn't it? As, as sort of been the thread all the way through through this conversation, it's just it's never that simple. It's never right or wrong. Yes. There are there are good ways and bad ways to do everything, and I think yes. a lot of the falconers out there are um, are very underestimated in the care that they put into their birds. Yes. Um. So, what do you do with um with one of these birds? Uh, in a day that you you want to take him out, how how long does he last? Uh, is he a session? What you do with them? Um, uh, explain a, a normal day for for one of these birds when when you are practicing falconry with them. Yes, yeah. So and this is something that is changing, and I have to be honest, Fran. I think changing for the better. So traditionally, a lot of these birds would have been um, tethered on a block, for example. So uh-huh. falcons would have been tethered. So they would have been tethered out on a lawn for a lot of the day. Um, that attitude is shifting more towards having these birds, what we call free lofted. So I within see. an aviary and free flying. Yeah. Um, there are certain times when you have to have birds tethered for training and yes. for their own safety yes. whilst you are training them, but then getting them free flying as soon as you can. So uh-huh. quite often these birds will spend a lot of their day just able to sort of free fly around their aviary and then these sessions regarding flying so it depends if you're doing displays with these birds for example then you may do two displays that day with a bird each display may be lasting 15 20 minutes something like that so for some birds they would get that level of really intense exercise a couple of times a day Um, for other birds that are hunting they may be out for hours oh, or, or all day depending on depending on the day um for some birds that are kept in a in an area safe enough so not with sort of i guess remote enough basically um some of these falconry centers that aren't very near built up areas they're able to literally allow their birds time to fly around and they'll come back when they're hungry oh. and those birds are I see. sort of yeah they, they're they, they see home as home, so they will always come back and they always wear radio telemetry. So if they were to get lost or something was to happen, they could always be tracked. But a lot of the time, actually, you can let these birds spend a bit of time out and it's, it's called hacking. It's a very old term and it's a method that's been used from falconry and translated across to rehabilitating birds of prey into the wild. So it essentially conditions the bird to know that the area it's getting food from is home. And these birds will return. So you can see some fantastic videos of, of people.
people's birds of prey that are literally just flying around having the time of their lives for half an hour, 40 minutes, and then they just come home when they've wow, had enough. Wow. And, and um, you can actually track them, you know, I mean, with your computer or your mobile phone. Yes, yeah, so that technology has come on leaps and bounds over the last sort of five years, really. Wow. So historically, you could only use traditionally the sort of wildlife style um, radio bleeping telemetry. So you'd be able to hold up a, something look, that looks like a TV aerial, wave it around, and it would bleep louder when you're pointing it at the direction that the bird is in, which yes. is fine. It's pretty cost effective, um, but it doesn't give you much information. The new GPS systems now, you can actually look on your phone and you can record the bird's flight path, how long it flew for, how high it flew, um, how steeply it dropped, that sort of thing. And you can actually record it. So you can record it and it overlays on something like Google Maps or or a satellite image of where you are. So you can actually track with this little blue line where this bird has flown. So that's proving more and more useful for, for example, wildlife rehabilitation, because if you're seeing these birds flying and you're training wild birds to be released, you can say, okay, well, how long was he able to fly before he got out of breath yesterday and then today and then next week? So you can use that data Mm -hmm. looking across different individuals to actually work out when that individual is healthy enough and strong enough and fit enough to then release. So Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, the technology itself is facilitating, I think, a lot more in terms of what you're able to yeah, obtain in terms of information from the birds. That's fantastic. That's that's excellent. You know, for people uh, for people who 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 don't know about falconry and they want to know a bit more, uh, is there any specific website an area they they can go on and say I'm going to read a bit more about it because I'm unsure about it and and I like to know more to form an opinion. Where would you direct them to? Definitely. So there has been um, something set up over the last couple of years, which was born from falconers, essentially, that wanted to, specifically exactly for this reason, to guide people and give impartial, honest, and very clear information about, okay, well, what is falconry? Or how do I get into falconry? And with specific articles on legislation surrounding using birds of prey for pest control or anything like that. So it's an organization called A Future with Falconry. Uh-huh. So they have social media and a website with resources, which is only growing month by month. But that would be where I would definitely direct people to obtain more information and learn more about it. It's it's interesting to see just the range of people that are so keen to learn more about falconry and engage with it it's it's something that's such an unknown i think to a lot of people that maybe have once seen a display at a summer show somewhere but don't really appreciate what goes into it and and for those people to learn more the future with falconry is where to go okay that's brilliant and you you mentioned regulation i'm guessing uh, this is something that um, is happening is there a um, welfare regulation of of these animals or, or even is there a code for for falconers to uh, to follow yes yeah, so traditionally there would have only been the very basic um animal welfare act really yes. um to go on but now there is more and more so for, for zoo collections there is the the zoo licensing act and yes. there are the secretary state standards for modern zoo practice so they are used to guide general practice but are not always applicable to private falconers mm-hmm. so there are codes that are now 
being written up and actually released. So we're working on a few codes of practice that um, myself and other vets are, are involved with in looking at bringing about some general welfare considerations and basically guidance for falconers because a lot of these people, as we've mentioned, are very diligent, they care about their birds, they love what they do, and a lot of them are crying out and are keen for just the guidance to know yes. that, okay, well, this is how we do it legally, this is how we do it correctly, um, and that we're getting it right. So, you know, they want the best for their birds' welfare. They want to comply with everything that they could do. And I think what's accelerated it certainly over the last couple of years has been avian influenza, where yes. there's been, falconers have been left in the dark a little bit. So yes. a couple of my colleagues have been involved with um, some consultations looking at where avian influenza has affected and will affect falconers and birds of, captive birds of prey. So again, over the last winter, bird flu has been pretty prevalent. It's not been that prevalent in the news because certain other viruses have been, I think, a little bit yes. more exciting for us in this country. <clears throat> but nevertheless, this disease has really had quite an impact on these birds and the ability to fly them, to hunt them, to exercise them. And the information just hasn't really been there in great quantity. So hopefully that's something that will build year on year to just ensure that these birds do keep receiving the best welfare that they can. Elliot, that, that was fantastic. Thank you. you um, I've learned a lot uh, from you today. Thank you for taking part in my show. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you for your time, Fran. It's fantastic to be part of the podcast. and I've listened to it so far and I'm, I'm hooked. It's, uh, it, it's very good, I have to say. Um, so, yeah, excited to see more to come. And that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope it gave you a little bit more understanding of who veterinary professionals are behind the scenes. Also, if you are involved in the veterinary profession and want to be interviewed in the show, visit the podcast website morethanjustabet.net and fill the form in the contact section. Tell me a little bit about you in the message, including your hobbies and why do you want to take part. Hasta la próxima!